today we're starting a brand new series called Intentional Christmas. Everybody say, Intentional Christmas. The reason we're calling this thing is Intentional Christmas is because usually when it comes to Christmas, we're between two extremes. And you know who you are in this room. Some of you, you just absolutely love Christmas. And you cannot wait for Christmas to get here. And you hate the idea that Christmas would ever end. But sometimes you can get so consumed with all the trappings of Christmas that you really miss the meaning of Christmas. What it's really all about, because it's not really all about finding great deals. It's not all about Christmas decorations. It's not all about all the different snack foods that you can eat and feel like they're not going to hurt you because this is Jesus' holiday. (laughs) And then there's the other end of the spectrum, and this is kind of where I fall. I just kind of want it to get over with. All right, like, there's all the parties. There's all the things. The music is terrible. Um, I don't know. Don't throw things at me. Um, Let's just, let's just, okay, it's here, it's Christmas, we have to do this, let's get it over with so we can get a new year and everybody get back to their goals and their ambitions. And what happens is when you're in between these, what we all miss out on, whether or not, where we're at, whether we're at the place where I just want this to be over or we're at the place where I don't want this to ever to end. Sometimes if we're not careful, we don't come to Christmas with an intentionality that really gets the heart behind it. If we just want it to be over, we don't, we miss that. If we just want it to last forever, we may still miss it because we make Christmas about things that Christmas was never supposed to be about. And so today we're going to lean in to the intentional aspects of this Christmas story and how we see some amazing, really um, magnificent things happen in the Christmas story. But (laughs) you probably knew this was going to happen. Last week, what did I tell you we were done? I told you we were done with Ephesians, didn't I? But there were these last two words in the book of Ephesians. The last two words of the last chapter of the last verse of Ephesians. And guys, I'm telling you, as I try to pray and to move on, there's something in me that I absolutely could not get past. These two last words that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and us as the church in McDonough. And I want to read, if you got a Bible, you can go there. Ephesians, we're going to be in the Bible a lot today. And a lot of it is not even going to be up here. So hopefully you got a Bible. Hopefully you're taking notes. You can track down a lot of the stuff we're going through. So if you got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 6, go down to verse 23. Ephesians 6, 23. I'll give you a second to get there. Hopefully you know how to find Ephesians really fast nowadays. So Paul says all the things he says in Ephesians. He just got through talking about armor, and then he gives this little like send-off blessing, gives some instruction, kind of gives this final benediction and this final blessing. And then in verse 23 and 24, he says this. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Love incorruptible. Those two words, as I find myself thinking through and praying through and processing through, how do I connect this book of Ephesians to this Christmas series and all these things that we're going through? Man, that word love incorruptible continued to weigh on my heart because that idea of there's being this love This is unlike any other love you've ever experienced in life. A love that cannot be tainted by selfish motives. A love that cannot be tainted by lust. A love that is truly incorruptible. Man, that's the kind of love that I want to experience. That's the kind of love I want our church to experience and I want the world to experience through the people of our church. And so I came to this place. We're going, okay, well, hold on, okay. If he's saying love incorruptible, well, who are we talking about here? So if you look at verse 24, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. So you got to kind of go back up here to this first part of verse 24. He says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. 
which kind of asks a question. There's going to be a lot of questions I'm going to ask you today, and so I'm going to need you to kind of be with me in your brain, okay? Well, this is going to be one of those messages where I don't just get really sweaty and encourage you, and you're just like, yes, and you're just feeling my emotions. This is going to be one of those where we think and process and work through some things together and have to actually go there to a deep place. One of those ones where you go, oh, this question's making my brain hurt, and I don't know what the right answer is, and it's going to keep me up at night if I continue to think about it. Those are the kind of messages I love, and so I'm going to take you there today. How do we love Christ? Where does that come from? If you're in this room and you would raise your hand and somebody says, do you love Jesus? How did that happen? The Bible actually gives us some really good clues on that. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love. We love because he first loved us. So when it says, grace be to those who love Christ with love incorruptible, what we can deduce from that is that I cannot love Christ unless I have first received love from Christ. If he's the one who I am awoken to his love by the way I see it, by the way I see it on display, as I hear the story of the gospel, as I see the God-man there on the cross, I see love. And that love that's on display through Jesus is what awakens my heart and makes me go, oh my God, literally, oh my God, I love you. And so if this love that we're receiving from Jesus is the love that awakens our heart to love him. And the love that it talks about in Ephesians 6, 24 is this love that's incorruptible. Then we can reason that the love that he gives us is an incorruptible love and the love we give back because we're loving him because the love that he gave us is what's placed inside of us. It's this pure, perfect love, unlike the pair of shoes you want under the Christmas tree, unlike what you hope your, your spouse would, would be to you one day in the future. He says, I am giving you an incorruptible love and it's awakening your heart. It's unlike anything else. It's miraculous, powerful, grace and mercy filled love and it's incorruptible that word incorruptible is also translated eternal never runs out never stops not tainted by the world it is perfect incorruptible love so we can come to that verse there in ephesians 6 24 and we can ask ourselves some big questions some big questions about this love incorruptible as I begin to process and pray through these words, I realize two things. One, Jesus is the one who has love incorruptible. And then he says in the verse there, grace will come to those who love Christ with a love that's incorruptible. So I'll start asking some questions here. If Jesus is this one, all right, track with me, who has this love that is incorruptible, how did that love of Jesus, how did Jesus' love become incorruptible? Was it just always incorruptible? So I began to ask this question. Was Jesus corruptible? And now I know some of you are like, oh, where's he going with this? That's not Jesus. Jesus ain't no corrupt Jesus. All right, well, track with me here. Was Jesus, let's ask ourselves the question before we take our knee-jerk God-is-God reaction, was Jesus corruptible? Maybe another way to ask that question is what could be corrupted on Jesus? Well, that would be his flesh, if he had one. And so that kind of begs that big question of did Jesus have a flesh nature? Did Jesus have an aspect to him as he's both God and man at the same time? We're going to get more into that in a second. Was Jesus there on earth in the places he walked around Galilee? Was he one who had potential for corruption? Was he flesh? 
Well, the Bible gives us some good clues on this. Let's walk through them together. All right, let's stay there for a second. I'm gonna, uh, you don't have time to turn there. John 1.1. 1, 1. It's a really good Christmas verse. It gets overlooked at Christmas time. But John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the what? The Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh. John 1.14 says, The Word became the Word. That's talking about Jesus. The Greek translation there is the Logos. So the word of God is what created the world. And we know that to be true. God didn't snap his fingers and make all the things that are here. He spoke the word into existence. And that spoken word is the Logos of God. And it says that that is Jesus. That's how John chooses to start out his gospel. It says the word, in the beginning, the word became flesh. And it made his dwelling among us. So if this word is Jesus and John, and John 1.14 says the word became flesh, then we have been able, then we've got to be able to see God the Son becoming something that He was not yet. Track with me here. If God the Son was with God from the very beginning, eternity past, there has never been a time where Jesus wasn't there. What you see in the manger, I'm just I'm tying this all into Christmas. What you see at Jesus upon conception of the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit, miraculous conception to for our Catholic friends, the Immaculate Conception. This baby in the womb of Mary, this baby then born in a manger in Bethlehem, is God taking on flesh, God the Son taking on flesh. So what this means is that though God the Son had been eternally there, at this moment in time, there in a manger in Bethlehem, we see the Son of God becoming something he wasn't yet, flesh. The word that we get for this is the hypostatic union. Big word. You've maybe heard this word before, incarnation. What this means is, the word hypostatic union is this thing that, again, is a a doctrine within our faith, it's Christianity, that is really hard for us to get our minds around. You ever try to explain the Trinity? How can God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all be one, but all be different at the same time? Try to explain that to a third grader. You're like, uh... Uh, and the best things that we can come up with are still broken metaphors about water and eggs, and it's still just very messy, and we cannot get all the things behind it. This idea of a hypostatic union, this reality that at the very same time, Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man. Now think about this. Uh, for a lot of us, even though we all, everybody in this room is 100% man or woman, mankind, for us, it's really hard for us to get our mind around this reality and truth that Jesus could also be 100% man. And because we hear so much about Jesus' miraculous power and his grace and how he defeated the grave and how he did all these things, our knee-jerk reaction in the church is to immediately jump to the fact that he's 100% God. And why I'm taking us here today is because I'm scared that if we miss out on the fact that there is this hypostatic union, that God became man, then God, for many of us, will remain the so holy and mighty, the so out there and distant God that we make him as, that he will be one who we will not approach when we are broken, ashamed, and fallen in our sin. He will remain for us a God who we don't think has any idea what it's like down here if we don't understand that there is this hypostatic union, that he is both fully 100% God and at the very same time 100% man. 
The biblical term that we get for this is incarnation. In meaning this God becoming in, incarnation, the, the kind of the root word there, same word we get for carnal, in the flesh. It's God coming in the flesh. This eternal, almighty God coming in the flesh to us. So if that's the case, well then again, I think it leads us to some more questions to get to the root of what's really going on in that manger in Bethlehem. What's really going on when God becomes man? And so if this God, this Jesus, this Son of God, puts on flesh, this Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and has a flesh, and you have a flesh, and you know what that flesh has felt. It's felt what? Temptation. You see something that looks pretty and shiny, and you want it. You know you're full, but that pecan pie with chocolate chips in it is asking for a second slice. Your wife comes downstairs and getting ready to go to the Christmas party, and she's trying to wear the same dress that she wore last year. And she asks you, does this look the same as it did last year on me? And you just gulp and swallow and say yes. See, we all have a flesh that either wants to keep peace or to circumvent God's ways and rules to get things that we want the way we want them. And so if Jesus is born in flesh, well, then that kind of begs this question, was he tempted? All right? Now, track with me. I'm going to ask questions here. I'm going to hopefully let you play around in your brain a little bit. Was Jesus tempted? Again, I think the Bible gives us some answers here to the question of was Jesus actually tempted? You can take the notes on this. I'll read it to you. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Listen to this. I think this gives us a little bit of light to this question of was Jesus actually tempted? The author of Hebrews is talking about the children of Abraham, and we're kind of brought into that under the, the whole fulfilled covenant that happens in the New Testament. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's me and you, we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. All right, that's Jesus. He shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they sinned, Knowing that God already had said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Sin equals death. Well, he's making the point here, saying that he might come in flesh the same way Adam and Eve were in flesh, so that he could break the power that happened when their flesh fell in the garden. Verse 15, and free those all who their lives were held by slavery by the fear of death. Verse 16, for surely it is not the angels he helps. He doesn't need to help the angels, but Abraham's descendants. That's me and you. Verse 17, listen to this. For this reason, he had to be made like them. That's us. Now listen to this. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become, and I love this about him, a merciful and faithful high priest and service to God, and that he might make, big word here, atonement for their sins, for the sins of the people. Verse 18, because he himself, listen to this, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I can read a passage to you like that, and it's not hard to take that at first glance and go, well, yes, he was tempted. And then you can go even a step further. You can go to this whole interaction where you see Jesus in, in, in 
Matthew 4. Matthew 4, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness on a fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens to him while he's out there? He's tempted by Satan. Now, again, I told you Satan is pretty sharp, and he knows who Jesus is. Why would Satan bother tempting the Son of Man at all? And you see Jesus there in the garden, Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's getting ready to go to the cross, and you see him cry out these words. Father, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, please let it happen. You see in, in there in the garden him, him showing these glimpses of, God, I'm tempted to see if there's a different way, but not my will be done, but yours. And then we read passages like Philippians 2, 6-11, and it says that we should have the very same attitude of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Some other translations say he didn't consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of or to be held onto, but he let go of some of that equality with God and then made himself low. We see this God who came from a place of exaltation. Hebrews, uh, or Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says, he humbled himself. He took on the very nature of a servant. And so maybe even there in Hebrews, what we see is this Jesus who is both fully God and fully man, but at times goes, I'm not going to leverage my God abilities for my own rights and privileges because to do so would be disobedient to the father who's the whole reason I'm here anyway. So we come to these passages and we ask big questions. And I think the really big question that may be on your mind and should be on your mind, if you ask the question, was Jesus tempted? Then the next question becomes, well, could Jesus have sinned? If he's here and he has a flesh and he's born like a human and this is something, not something that he changes to become, but something that he puts on, he didn't let go of his godness. He didn't put that aside and press pause on God to become man. He was at this very same time. Again, this is this crazy hypostatic union thing that we can't fully get our minds around. If he has a flesh, then the question becomes, well, could that flesh have done what fleshes do? Sin? There's a passage I want you to write down and go look up after this. Really a chapter in the Bible that I encourage you to commit to memory. is Romans 8. Romans 8, Paul is trying to help us understand what Jesus did, what Jesus faced. In Romans 8, 3, he says these words. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. What he's saying there, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So God gave these laws. Ten commandments, don't commit adultery, don't sin, don't don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't do those things. Because we were weak in the flesh, we could not keep the law. No person had been able to keep it perfect, nobody at all. And then he says this, by sending his own son, here's these words, and this is, as I got it, the deeper I got into this, the more I found myself in this giant Jesus rabbit hole. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh. If you have your Bible open, Underline and put a question mark there. Sending his own son 
and the likeness of sinful flesh. What does that mean? That Jesus is in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does that mean that he could have sinned? Does that mean that he could not have sinned? Yes. <laughs> Here's the part of the hypostatic union that we could spend all the rest of our time figuring out. And theologian after theologian after scholar after scholar has given argument after argument around these things. Here's what we can know for sure. Jesus did not sin. But if we just take him as a savior who we go, he didn't sin. He was God all the way, God all the way through. I think we are in danger of missing out on this opportunity to go, no, I need a savior who didn't just come and maintain perfection and just stay perfect because he was perfect and there's nothing that could happen that would ever change his perfection. I need, if I'm going to overcome sin, if I'm going to overcome temptation, man, it would be good to know that I have a savior who's felt what I felt and overcame it in himself. And so we come to a passage like this and we go, well, could he have sinned? No, because he was God. Well, could he have sinned? Yes, because he was man. And spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what in the world that implies. So I want to ask you a question then. Because what we know for sure is that Jesus did not sin. Right? We can all agree on that. All right? All heads are not. Okay. Now the question is this. When did Jesus become perfect? Now, I wrote become on purpose. I'm going to get a little bit caught up in semantics here, but I want you to track with me. When did Jesus become perfect? At his birth or at his death? I'm not going to, I've already asked like four or five people out loud this question. I love the answers that I got all the course of this end of the week. Some really good conversations around this. You know, just roll this out around the Christmas table at your house and see what happens. It should be fun. When did he become perfect? Now, I hear some of you in the room going, well, he was born perfect. And when he was 12 and he stayed behind at the temple, when his parents went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he was still a 12-year-old boy, perfect. When he turned water into wine, now the Baptists don't think that was perfect, but we think that that was perfect. He's still perfect when he does that. When, when we see him meet the Samaritan woman at the well, and show, tell her that he's the living water. He's still perfect. Even when he's flipping over tables at the temple in his anger, that's, he's still perfect. But I'll give you this metaphor. It's a baseball one, so forgive me. It's what I know best outside of Jesus. In baseball, there's such thing as a perfect game. All right? There's a perfect game in baseball. In order to, uh, and a perfect game is something that a pitcher does while he's on defense to try to keep the other teams from scoring. All right. Now, a perfect game is a game in which this pitcher has nobody even reach first base. There's a difference between a perfect game and a no hitter. And a no hitter, I can walk a couple of guys, I can hit a guy in the helmet, and he can be on first base. You can give up runs in a no hitter, but in a perfect game, nobody touches first base. No walks. No hits. 27 guys come up, 27 guys go down. Now, in the third inning, this pitcher has given up no runs and no hits. Has he thrown a perfect game? 
No. It's the third inning. He hasn't thrown a perfect game. Now, is he throwing a perfect game? He sure is. Fifth inning. Is he throwing a perfect game? Yes. Has he thrown one? No. The question becomes, when has the pitcher thrown the perfect game? When does the game become perfect? When it is finished. Do you know what Jesus said in John 19.30? In John 19.30, they offered Jesus a sponge filled with sour wine. He drinks from the sponge, and then he cries out in a loud voice, It is finished. 27th out. Perfection. And so, to go back to our question here, when did Jesus become perfect? I would say he was being perfect forever. When did Jesus become perfect? When out of the mouth of the Son of God, who came in a manger, born the way humans are born, living the way humans live, and then dying the way humans would have died. He screams out, it is finished. See, I would make the argument that there in that moment at the cross, though he was perfect and he maintained perfection through the entire time, he becomes, at the cross, when he cries out, it is finished, he becomes a perfect substitutionary atonement for my sin. So that now, the grand mission of the whole reason God would have to come to earth so that humans who are earthly, sin-dwelling creatures could actually get back to the Father. Now, one who is God has come in the likeness of human flesh, lived what they lived. Track with me. Back to the whole love incorruptible. This God came to earth, put on our potential for corruption flesh, was born in a corrupt city of Bethlehem, escaped corruption from King Herod, who sought in his corrupt mind to kill every king who would pose a threat to his kingdom. He was born in a corrupt family, where when he was raised, they were all still going, he's crazy. Had corrupt group of friends, all of which abandoned him in his most dire time of need, one of which who was the primary culprit for his crucifixion. He walks into a corrupt religious system where he could have manipulated that to his advantage very fast. He walks into a corrupt people group who longed to have a make Jerusalem great again king. They longed for a king like David to come, and many times they try to put a crown on his head, and he avoids that corruption. And if there was like a, a tiptoe of him maybe thinking about it, he's there getting arrested in the garden. And it is as if in his last little glimmer of the power and magnitude of God that he chooses to purposely fully display to the people around him, this Roman guard comes and says, are you the one who claims to be the Messiah? And he says, I am he. And they all fall on their backs. And then he hands himself over to their corruption. He does all of this so that he can be for us, for you and for me, the perfect embodiment of love incorruptible. A love that never stops. A love that faced what you face. 
a love that experienced what you experience. But all through the entire thing maintains his incorruptibility. And so what I think this means for us is put on display in the passage that I want to show you in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to actually put this one on the screen. I want you to turn there. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Hebrews was written to who? Not a trick question. Hebrews, yeah. <laughs> Hebrews are Jewish people. Okay, so whoever this author of Hebrews is, many people argue that it's Paul. Whoever the author of Hebrews is, is writing to people who have a Jewish heritage, and he's trying to help them see from all the things that they've seen of, of Yahweh, their God in the past, that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment, that he's the one that all the prophecies talked about, that he's the one that Abraham and everyone after Abraham, even David and all the priests and everything, he's the one that all that was pointing to. That is what the author of Hebrews is trying to do and is trying to show. And if you remember back to the, the nation of Israel, the Israelites, they had a priest. And what the priest would do is a priest would intercede on behalf of the people. This is before Jesus shows up on the scene. They have a priest. And, and once a year, you come into the place and you confess all your sins to the priest. And he slaughters the spotless lamb that your family brings. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do, he's trying to help the people who are reading this understand that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of both the priest and the lamb that he is both the priest that can intercede and he's the lamb that was sacrificed. And so he says these words in Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Again, he's, he's trying to help them understand that we don't have a God who just showed up and was a good moral teacher and we're all just gonna try to do what he's doing because that's what all the Hebrew people who were not in Christ thought Jesus was. They thought he was just a human. They thought he was just a guy who taught good lessons. They thought he was just another rabbi born the way people are born. He goes, no, 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 no. We have a high priest who passed through the heavens as if to say he came down from God. Passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect... I love, the, I love the detail. I love the breadth of what he says here. Who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the point he's trying to make here, lean into this before I show you the next verse, is that Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Sympathize. We have in Jesus a king priest, a Lord and a Savior Messiah who has felt the pull of the flesh. We have in Jesus a Messiah who has resisted temptation to its uttermost. We have a Jesus who knows what it's like to be abandoned and ostracized by people who are supposed to love him the most. We have a Jesus who knows what it's like to feel crippling anxiety as he sweats drops of blood, begging his father, if there's any way out of this, please get me out of this. We have a Jesus who craved alone time the way you do, who sent his disciples across the ocean. You guys get away. I got to go spend time with the father. I need some time to myself. We have a Jesus who felt what we feel, who put a body like the one you live in on. 
and he was tempted. And I love these words, in every way. Now again, Jesus didn't have a cell phone. And he didn't ever have to struggle with what he was looking at on his cell phone. But what's the root of the sin that keeps you looking at your cell phone? Lustful cravings. Desire to numb the pain. Distractions. Oh, you better believe he felt those. So he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Now here is the kicker, and this is what I love about this, and this is the the hidden, if you will, message in the Christmas story. Because of that, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Is there anybody who would be bold enough or brave enough, even within the confines of your own heart, to say right now, here in December, I am in a time of need. I need some Jesus. He says, okay, you're in a time of need. Here's what you need to understand. We have a high priest who sits on a throne, not of judgment, but sits on a throne of grace. Therefore, approach him with what? Fear and trembling? No, I approach him with confidence because I know it's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace and mercy. And I may receive that mercy and find grace, and that's what helps me in time of need. And the problem is, when we sin, when we fail, when we make our mistakes, we don't run to the throne of grace. We do the exact opposite of what Jesus said he did not come to do. He said, I have not come to condemn the world. I've come to save the world. Yet with us in our sin, we sin and we try to condemn ourselves. We do the very same thing he said he didn't come to do. We condemn ourselves and say, I've got to punish myself so that I can get out of this. And then when I'm good for a week or three, then I can go back and start plugging back into Jesus. And he says, no, don't forget that I am the son of God and I am also the son of man. And I've walked where you've walked felt what you felt, and I have overcome. And what you need is not to do better. What you need is the grace and mercy to resist. That's why Paul said, you have no obligation to the flesh anymore if you were in Christ. But do you know what you're doing when you abstain from coming to Jesus in your moments of sin and fall? You are giving obligation back to the flesh just so I've got to go make my flesh stronger. You can't strengthen a crucified flesh. It's dead. And so what you need is to receive this mercy and this grace that continues to allow your life to be made new in Christ so that the power that's made available to him that we receive at the throne of grace to actually be yours. If you're tracking here, I want you to see in your eye three symbols. The first symbol we see here, as we've covered today, is a cradle or a feeding trough or a manger. It was likely a, a, a big stone kind of thing that was carved out on the inside where they could put the hay so that the donkey could take its head down and eat the hay out of it. As Jesus is born there and what we oftentimes think about as this big wooden, you know, carved out thing because that's what we have on our mantle was likely more or less a cave And when we hear about Jesus being a carpenter, we need to understand that most of the carpentry that they were doing was not carpentry with wood, but was actually carpentry with stone. And Jesus is is there laid in this cradle. We see that in this story where love incorruptible begins. There in the Christmas story, and I want you to see this every time you you see the nativity scene, to see there there in the cradle, there in the feeding trough, there in the manger, 
Love incorruptible beginning its journey. You want to tap into the metaphor because it's easy to remember. You see the first pitch of the perfect game. And then you see the life end. You see the 27th out as he cries out, it is finished on the cross. And then if the verse we read in Hebrews is true, there's a cradle, there's a cross, but then there's a what? There's a throne of grace. Now, maybe you've never made this connection, but those three symbols must be in the life of every person who is in Christ. The cradle. In John 3, Jesus makes it very clear. In John 3, 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And friends, I said this before as we were going through Ephesians. Nobody is born again in adolescence. Nobody is born again in their 40s. You are born again as an infant in Christ. He says nobody will see the kingdom of God unless they have their own soul cradle moment where they are born again. And also for the life of every Christian, the same way we see it in Christ is a cross. In Luke 9, 23, he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. See, you become a Christian when you're born again. But there's a reason in that verse of Luke 9, 23, why he said, if anyone will come after me, he must take up his cross daily. What Jesus is trying to help us understand that in the life of every, uh, every Christian, there is a cradle, but there's also a cross. And the rebirth is where you are born again. That's where salvation happens. But at the cross, this is the process of sanctification. This is you daily taking up your cross and dying to yourself that there's less and less and less and less of you there and it's more and more and more and more of Christ there because you are crucifying the flesh. But, and this is, we may get the fact that we have to be born again. We may get the fact that we have to carry a cross. But this Jesus who went from a cradle to a cross to a throne also invites you to a throne as well. In Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. He says, But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And listen to this. And raised up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where is Jesus sitting, according to Hebrews? On a throne of grace. Where are you seated, according to Ephesians? Right beside him. Right beside him. Now, I know that feels weird, because your butt is in this chair. In in proximity, you're in McDonough. Legally, if you're in Christ, though, your soul, because you're not just a body that happens to have a soul right now. You're a soul that happens to have a body and this old body is going to go away one day. But if you're in Christ, what he has promised is that your soul has a secured resting place and it is reigning with Christ. Now, what's wild about this is this. This is, again, potential to push us into approaching this throne of grace. 
Because it's not like I'm walking into the principal's office and this is just his office and he's just got some stuff in here and I'm going to come walk to the principal's office, tell him the things I've done and hope I get out free. It's no, I've got an office too. I'm here. He doesn't allow me to come into my office, come into his office, take my licks and then go out and try to live a better life. He says, no, 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 son. Take a seat over there at your seat. You, 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 you will reign with me. If you're in Christ... You now have royalty in your bloodline. Now, it's not perfect down here. You'll stumble and get it wrong as you try to be your own king down here. But what he promises is that eventually this old sin-scarred flesh will fall away. And there will be a day in your life where you too say the words he says, it is finished. And you will cross the line from this life into eternity. And if you're in Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome in to the kingdom. Your seat's over there, right by me. I saved it for you this whole time. And friends, this is the gospel. And this is the intentionality behind the Christmas story. Because, listen, it had to happen in Bethlehem. It had to happen in a manger. It had to happen through a virgin. He had to be born. He couldn't have just shown up like theological prophet figures in other religions and came and lived a good life and done some good things. No, he had to start the way humans start. He had to end the way humans end. He couldn't have even just came as a baby and lived a really good life and just been good and good and good and good and good and good and then just hollered up to God, all right, I've, I've made it to adulthood without sin. Let's figure that, come on back down. Let's figure it out. We're good. I made it to adulthood. Like that's the finish line. No, it had to end in death because the punishment of sin from all the way back in Genesis was death. And the perfect God had to die for us. As we get ready to transition to communion, I want you to understand that the word Bethlehem was all just big foreshadowing of what was to come. See, even the name of the city, Bethlehem, the name of the city, Bethlehem, means house of bread. See, you see the intentionality behind God to foreshadow, even in the place he was born, the, the fact that he, though he comes in Bethlehem in flesh, he, this is the moment in time where God puts flesh on, and then fast forward all the way to the night where he dies. And on the night that Jesus goes to be crucified, he holds up a piece of bread, the one who was born in the house of bread, and says that every time you eat again of this bread, please remember that it represents my flesh, broken and torn apart. So that through the resurrection, I could put the world back together again. And what I want you to understand is that God also wants to use you to help put the world back together again. He wants to use you to help bring people to his throne of grace. And the action step I'm going to leave you with this week after you take communion is to begin to think about who you could bring in to the throne of grace 
this Christmas season. We printed out these invitation cards. We put one of those on every chair. Please, please, please take one of those with you and begin to ask yourself this question. If I am someone who now approaches the throne of grace with boldness because I'm in Christ, then how should I live accordingly? Should I be a man or woman or a young person who also invites other people in so that they can experience this throne of grace as well and they can experience the true meaning of Christmas? So my hope and prayer is that you begin to ask as you receive communion, thank Jesus, that he's the flesh broken from you, that he's a God you can approach to receive grace and mercy, that you begin to ask him, Jesus, I'm coming to you today, to your throne of grace, and who is it in my life where I live, work, and play who you need me to invite to this throne as well? And as you go, I pray you take that card and somehow, some way, it finds its way to them. You have no idea what God can do through a simple invitation. As he says, come and taste and see that I am good. Let's pray and receive communion today. Father God, we praise you for your love. praise you for your grace. We praise you for your truth today that we have uncovered in your word. Let it change us as we realize and understand that you get us. You understand us. You really love us because you became one of us. Thank you for being born. We thank you for all the things you said and did. We thank you for your love that was incorruptible. Now, Jesus, we pray that as recipients of that incorruptible love, we can love you the same way. In your name.